Good morning, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, please. On January 2, just a few weeks ago, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin made what looked to be a completely routine tackle on a Bengals wide receiver. I'm sure you've heard the story. Hamlin stood up from the collision, took a step back towards his huddle, and then suddenly collapsed. Hamlin's heart had stopped. On-field medics rushed to him, performing CPR for 10 minutes before he was transported by ambulance to the local hospital where his life was saved. And this past week, Hamlin was released from the hospital. Miracle of modern medicine celebrated. A happy ending to an altogether traumatic event. During those 10 minutes that Hamlin was on the field, a hush seemed to fall over the entire stadium, really across the whole watching world who was watching it live. Players from both teams began taking a knee, heads bowed in what appeared to be prayer. Announcers, commentators, media heads all began the the oft-used chant that their, quote, thoughts and prayers were with DeMar Hamlin and his family. Hashtag prayers up and praying for Hamlin all began to make the rounds on Twitter. One courageous sports anchor even paused his show and publicly prayed for Hamlin. Scandalous. It seems that now, even in our modern age of 2023, particularly when catastrophe strikes, tragedy happens, there is always immediately an inclination, almost an instinct within the human heart, regardless of religious affiliation or lack thereof, to look to the heavens and beg for help. It's from those, from those NFL players who were kneeling on the field, fearing for their friend and teammate, to George Bailey in Martini's bar at the end of his rope, begging, show me the way, God. The inclination to appeal to some higher power seems to be hardwired in us. There come moments in our lives when we just realize that we cannot do nothing for ourselves. We do not have the power to control our lives. And it's in those moments we look to the heavens longing for help. But if that is the instinct of even the unbelieving world, how are you and I as followers of Christ to understand the practice and the grace of prayer? What is it? How should we do it? How often should we do it? These are honest and good questions, and in Acts chapter 4, we have in focus a small group, but growing gospel community in Jerusalem. Just a few months earlier, Jesus had been crucified, died, buried, ascended, arose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. And this small group, made up of the 12 disciples, now apostles, and their small band of followers, have just recently received the mission of God to be witnesses to the ends of the world and that the immense gift of the Spirit would come to empower them to accomplish that mission. And we are seeing here the Church of Christ at its infancy. This is not describing the birth of the church, more like its first attempts at walking. (laughs) And like all children, mine included, one currently, learning to walk includes a lot of falling. This small gospel community is beginning to experience the persecution that Jesus said that they should expect but also experiencing the favor of God 
as their spirit-inspired speech was adding to their number more and more every day. So in our text this morning, Peter and John have just been released from the custody of the Jewish council. They had been seized because they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And that was just too much for these leaders. Who, by the way, were the same leaders who put Jesus to death, a, a, a thought that Peter will not let them forget. And upon their return to the community, after they are released, they do the most unexpected thing. They pray. They pray. And I believe the Lord would have us be reminded of the incredible grace that is prayer from these early Christians' example. If you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, I assume and hope that you have some conception of what prayer is and the benefits it is to you. So today, my aim, this, this sermon is not meant to reveal some new and, and novel thing to you, but rather my humble aim is that at the beginning of this new year, we might rekindle the often neglected and often overlooked habit of prayer and to reorient our vision of prayer outside of ourselves and up to the gracious one to whom we pray. And in order to do that, there's no other place for us to look than in his word. So out of reverence and honor of that word, would you stand, please, if you're able, as I read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23 through 31. And when they, John and Peter, were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. God, even... Now, right now, we turn to you, recognizing we need your help. Would you open our eyes to behold the wondrous things in this word? Incline our hearts toward you, God. Unite our hearts to fear you and to fear your word and satisfy us, Lord, with this word. There are no people in this room that need to hear from me, but we all need to hear from you. God. So would you address us and would you bless the preaching of your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think it might be difficult to find an area of the Christian life as intimate, as vulnerable, as sometimes simple 
as prayer. The august Christian poet George Herbert described the nature of prayer this way in his famous sonnet entitled Prayer. He says this, Prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth. The spiritual discipline, the habit of prayer, is an incredibly intimate component of the Christian life. As Herbert says, it's the God's breath in man returning to his birth and the soul in paraphrase. I just love that, that phrase. It's also an incredibly versatile component of the Christian life. It can be done in public, as it is now, corporately, from a pulpit, in small gatherings like our missional communities, uh, at the kitchen table with our families, and can even be done in the quiet of our very hearts. It engages our deepest affections, our longings, our confessions, our hopes, and our petitions. And the foundation of, and at the foundation of this prayer recorded for us in Acts 4, what ultimately is the foundation of every prayer is the God to whom we pray. Praying may be a ubiquitous action of every human, but the effectiveness, the confidence, the ultimate hope of every prayer itself relies solely on the one to whom the prayer is addressed. It does us no good if we are a praying people. It matters to whom we are praying at all. And in this text, we see clearly that these believers, in the wake of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, addressed their prayers to God, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And with that in mind, here's what I believe is the main point from this text regarding prayer. Because of the finished work of Christ, we can go to the sovereign God in prayer and receive grace, boldness, and more of his spirit. Because of the finished work of Christ. We can go to the sovereign God in prayer and receive grace, boldness, and more of the Spirit. And this morning, we're going to start by looking at the basic reality of prayer, the grace that prayer is, what it is, how it's possible, why it's worth cultivating, and then we'll examine three lessons that can be drawn, gleaned from this prayer in Acts 4 in particular. So first, the grace of prayer. Few definitions of prayer improve on that of John Bunyan. He says this, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God hath promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Like I said, few could improve on that <laughs> wonderfully thorough definition. If Bible reading, meditating on the Bible, as Greg preached two weeks ago, is primarily and foremost the engagement of the mind and thought, prayer is the, primarily the engagement of the heart and soul. In prayer, we expose ourselves, not just our minds, but our hearts our very souls to God. And at the core of our prayer, of our praying, is a core assumption about who God is. Namely, 
a communicating God. The very first sentence in the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith is this. Our eternal, transcendent, all-glorious God, who forever exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is by his very nature a communicative being. Consider that. We do not pray to a statue. We do not pray to stone or to earth. We pray to a person. And a person can speak back and commune with us. At its essence, when we pray to God, we are participating in a conversation. And this is a conversation that we didn't start. We did not initiate the conversation. On our own, apart from the initiation of God, we would not pray at all. Well, we certainly wouldn't be praying to the triune God of the Bible, but what a grace it is that God has not left us alone. He has not left us in the dark, but has revealed himself to us in his word and ultimately to us in Christ. The very God who by his word created the world, sustains the world, reveals his son to us, desires to hear our voice as well. What a marvel. What other God is there? So transcendent, so majestic, powerful, and yet personal in desiring to know us and to hear us. That's who we pray to. David Mathis in his excellent book, Habits of Grace, says this, prayer for the Christian is not merely talking to God, but responding to the one who has initiated toward us. That's right. He has spoken first. His voice breaks the silence. And then in prayer, we speak to the God who has spoken. Our asking, our pleading and requesting originate not from our emptiness, but his fullness. Prayer doesn't begin with our needs, but his bounty. We, as Christians, have access to God himself. We have his ear. This is a majestic and shocking reality of the Christian life, that the king of the universe would take the time to care about me. So the great secret about prayer is not that in prayer we get the things we ask for, but the fact that we get God himself. That is scandalous. We do not commune with a statue, but we commune with a person. And in Christ, that person is a father with affection toward us. It's, it is scandalous. That, that reality is only scandalous if we know who God is. Holy, perfect, glorious, and who we are when we, in light of his holiness. Sinful, rebellious, wretched. How often do we stop and consider what is actually happening when we pray to God? The thought of me, a sin-ridden human being, communing with the holy, holy, holy God causes me to respond as Isaiah did when he had his vision of God in the glorious throne room in Isaiah 6, 4 and 5. Isaiah recounts this, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, and for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That seems more appropriate. <laughs> Before the perfectly holy God, I have 
nothing and cannot stand before God, let alone talk to him, let alone have him hear me and care for me and engage with my life. But the scene is not the end of Isaiah's scene. It's not the end of our story either. Look at what happens next in Isaiah 6, 7, and 8. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Something had to happen for Isaiah to stay in the presence of God, for him to be able to commune with the holy king of the universe. From the altar, the angel brings a live coal, symbolizing the substitutionary sacrifice of someone on the behalf of Isaiah that atones for his sins, reconciling him to the Father so that he can have communion with the king. Of course, this beautiful prophetic scene depicts the very gospel that we love and cherish. And it is vital for us to never remove the gospel of Jesus Christ from our prayers. The death of Christ on our behalf did a lot of things. But one of the greatest realities is that it made it possible for sinners to commune with God himself through prayer. Ryan preached so effectively last week on the immense joy of Christian fellowship from Hebrews 10, 23 and 25. Well, hear the verse that immediately precedes those in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This way has been made by Jesus, and it is a new and living way. It's a person. The presence of God is no longer contained in the temple where only the high priest can petition once a year on behalf of the nation. The blood of bulls and goats does not compare with the blood of the Son of God shed for you and for me so that we now, because of his sacrifice, through his spirit, can commune with God at any time, anywhere, through the incredible grace of God prayer. And so, because of the finished work of Christ, we can and must heed the call of the author of Hebrews to draw near to God in full assurance of faith, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We can draw near to God because Christ drew near to us. So, question for you, dear friends. What is your attitude when you draw near to God? Is it one of humility humble confidence, or one of shame and guilt. When you pray, do you stop and consider, consciously consider, the gift, the gracious gift that it is? 
We cannot and will not ever be able to cultivate a habit of prayer just by telling ourselves, I need to pray more. (laughs) Trying harder and harder will never work and will only lead to more frustration, more guilt, more shame, and ultimately, less prayer. But when we stop to consider, whether alone in our rooms, corporately in our MCs, around our dinner tables, even tucking our kids into bed, what it is we are doing when we pray and who it is we are communing with, by the help of the Spirit, we may slowly start to find ourselves progressing in this particular area of our sanctification. Oh, may we never grow tired of pondering the incredible abundance of mercy and grace that's been poured out on us in our salvation. Chief among those, communing with the very God of the universe. And to the early Christians, the ones in our text in Acts chapter 4, the gospel of Jesus Christ was not such some ancient story in a book, but they were living in the very present and real fallout of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. They may not have had the inspired writings of Paul yet to give detailed theological explanation of the gospels, but they did know Jesus. They did walk with him and talk with him and commune with him. And as John, one of our characters in Acts 4, would later write, they had, quote, seen his glory. Glory as one, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, they had received grace upon grace. So there are incredible lessons for us to learn from these early Christians and how they practiced the habit of prayer. And I believe there are three reasons or three lessons for us this morning that will help us in our endeavor to commune more and more with God himself. First, they prayed to the sovereign Lord. Remember the setting. These Christians are just beginning to experience the early forms of the persecution that will come to mark the church for the following centuries and really the rest of history. Opposition persecution starting to ramp up. And they address their prayer to the sovereign Lord. Here at Emmaus Road Church, it's one of our core theological convictions that God is a sovereign God. Or another way to think, he's a big God, the bigness of God. Once again, from our statement of faith, says this, from all eternity, God sovereignly ordained all that exists and all that occurs in his creation in order to display the fullness of his glory. Or, as God himself says in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. That's a big God. Now, a common critique of this position is that if God is so sovereign, how do we make sense of all the evil in the world? Are we really free moral agents or are we robots just doing whatever it is God has told us to do or makes us do? Or more pressing for our purposes, if God has already determined what's going to happen, what use 
is prayer. Why petition anything to God if he's already made up his mind about what he will bring about and purpose what he will? Fair questions. But if we look at what these Christians did in Acts chapter 4, how they prayed, we see that they also understood the bigness of God. They understood God to be a sovereign in God. And we see it not just in their address to him as sovereign Lord, but in the prayer itself. Look again at Acts 4. In their prayer, they recognize that he is the creator of all things. Verse 24. He is the one who speaks in the Bible through human agents by the Holy Spirit. Verse 25. He is the one who anointed Jesus to be the suffering servant. Verse 27. And it is he, God, who, verse 28, predestined Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and all the Jews to put to death Jesus just as he had planned. The very death of the innocent Son of God was always the plan. And ultimately, it's God himself who brought it about. That's a big view of God. But look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They are not only praying to the sovereign Lord, recognizing his predestining action, but are appealing to him to act against the genuine evil intentions and those who are persecuting them. These Christians had no issue reconciling the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They acknowledge that the one they are praying to is in control, but they appeal to him for protection and for boldness, for witness. And it's clearly not one of futility, but rather one of faith. Far from being the antithesis to our prayers, it is the very foundation of their prayers. In writing on the sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer says it bluntly, and it's worth quoting at length. He says, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in the world. There is no need. For I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already. Well, how do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and you give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good that you hope in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It is not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hands. In effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. The very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of God. 
And these Christians believed in the lordship of God. In their prayer and petition, they appeal to the only one who can actually do anything about their situation. If there's going to be any help, it will come from God himself. Like the psalmist in Psalm 121, 1 through 2, he says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sovereign Lord. We thank God for our salvation, and we beg God to save those ones that we love. And we do this because only he is the one who can bring the dead to life. Only he can make us alive together with Christ. And this reality should be far from frustrating our prayers. It should be relieving. I am not able to save myself because in my sin, I would never choose God. But because, of, because he is solely responsible for my salvation, he alone then gets all the glory. And as we, So as we pray, may we never lose sight of the one to whom we pray, the sovereign Lord. The second lesson we can learn from the prayer is this. Number two, they prayed the word. Look at what these... Believers use as the heart or the engine of their prayer. After acknowledging God as creator and ruler, they turn to his word to fuel and to govern their prayers. They knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles well enough to know what particular word, what passage would fit their corresponding present difficulties and engender in them hope. So where do they turn? Psalm 2. Interesting enough, Psalm 2 is also a prayer, a prayer of David, who likely wrote this psalm and prayer in the midst of his own difficulties, feeling like all of the enemies of God are surrounding him on all sides and knowing only God could save him. So these early Christians understood their Bibles well enough to know how to use it to fuel their prayers and govern their petitions. And this is a very helpful practice in developing our practice of prayer. A good way to to, to prime the pump, if you will, of our prayers is to read this word. Meditate on this word. And then pray this word. These early saints let the word of Christ dwell in them richly and gave them direction and movement to their pleas. So, in order to rightly fuel the habit of grace of prayer, we must be also cultivating the gracious habit of reading the Word, meditating on the Word, savoring the Word, and through the Spirit, apply the Word to our lives and turning to God in prayer. So as you read your Bibles, linger on the words. Don't just read through to check a box, but, but linger. And as Greg preached a few weeks ago, meditate on these inspired words. We read, we meditate and we pray. We respond to God through his very revelation to you. And the more you understand, the more that we understand this book as an invitation from the king to engage with you in conversation, the more we will be able to respond to him in prayer. Finally, the third lesson from Acts 4 that we can learn in our prayers is this. Number three, they prayed for boldness in their gospel witness. Paul, in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, says, Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In prayer, it's right for us to honor God for who he is, to to celebrate him and his glorious and marvelous acts, to thank him for all that he has done and has promised to do for us in Christ Jesus. But it's also appropriate to ask God, to make requests to God, to petition to him for our needs. Once again, we cannot escape the sovereignty of God in our prayers. Notice, the Acts 4 Christians were not praying to Caesar for help or to the local ruling authorities for help, or even to Peter and John for help, but we're praying to God. He is the giver of all good gifts. He is the fount of living water and the bread of light, which can alone satisfy. And like David in Psalm 2, these Christians cry out to God because he alone is in control. But notice what the Christians ask for. They don't ask for different circumstances or immediate alleviation of their suffering, but rather for bold, for bold witness as they suffer. They understood the mission given to them by Jesus himself in Acts 1.8 to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, a, a mission that is ours as well. And so they begged God to keep his word and to continue to supply them with the faith and the boldness to keep going despite their circumstances. Al Mohler, commenting on this passage, says this, These Christians were praying, quote, Lord, in the face of opposition, don't let us weaken. Don't let us compromise. Please keep working out your purposes, and please keep us working for your purposes. Or, as Calvin puts it, they crave at God's hand that he will beat down the cruelty of their adversaries. Yet not so much for their own sake, that they may live quietly and without vexation, but that they may have liberty to preach the gospel in all places. They prayed for boldness to preach the gospel. How often is that the center of my prayer? How often is that the center of our prayer? How often is my prayer time filled with petitions to God to make my life easier? To make my life more comfortable? Less vexation, if you will. Rather, as this text shows us, in the midst of growing social opposition and state-sponsored persecution, we can go to God and receive from him grace and boldness. And notice what happens after their prayer. The Lord grants their request of continued boldness and witness, but he also manifests his presence among them, filling them with his spirit. The very way that they're going to have bold witness is through his spirit. God gives them what they don't even know. He gives them in abundance. Their simple request is met, and they receive even more than they asked. They're given abundance, and ultimately the thing that fuels their bold witness, the spirit himself. So because of the finished work of Christ, we now have that same spirit. It's through him that we are able to pray at all. And it is him that we should desire. For from him come all the fruits that he brings. And through him we are empowered to boldness in our witness. Do you have an unbelieving friend, but you don't know how to bring the gospel up to them? Pray for more of the Spirit. Do you feel terrified 
talk to that unbelieving family member about who Jesus is and what he's done. Pray for more of the Spirit. Are you beginning to feel pressures at work from HR, not knowing what to do next, what your next steps are? Pray for more of the Spirit. Through prayer, we have access to the sovereign King who created the heavens and the earth. And he has acted decisively to deal with our sin and has poured out his spirit among us so that we can know him, we can talk with him and be empowered by him. So let this be the year that we all, by God's grace, reorient our vision of who God is and to the one we pray and ask him to fill us again with his spirit to the end that we might receive grace and boldness to make and multiply his disciples here in Sioux Falls and to the ends of the world. Let's pray. We look to you, O sovereign Lord of the universe, the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The very God who made us alive together with Christ. Who gave us the very spirit that draws us here even this morning. It's interceding Christ who is interceding right now that we might even petition to you right now. God, would you give us more of your spirit? We ask for abundance to the effect of boldness in our witness. God, would you be faithful to your promises to us that we would be your witnesses in this city, in our families, in this state, to the ends of the earth. So God, we're asking for power from on high through your word, governed by your word, accomplished by your son. We ask for more. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.